0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for the best part of three years now, but for listeners who might not have heard it before, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I'm delighted to tell you that my guest this week is the fascinating artist, Dr. Alexandra Daisy-Ginsberg. Daisy started a career as an architect before going on to study on the revolutionary, and now sadly defunct, Design Interactions course at the Royal College of Art in London. While there, she became fascinated by synthetic biology and set about finding a place for design within this emerging field, bringing together scientists and designers to collaborate on a variety of projects. More recently, she's turned her attention to the relationship between technology and nature, producing a string of installations that aim to illustrate what we have and what we're in danger of losing through our own intransigence and our obsession with the new. So she's used artificial intelligence to recreate the bird song of the dawn chorus, investigated how Mars could be colonised by plants, and designed a digital version of the now-extinct northern white rhino. Her most recent work has just opened at the Eden Project in Cornwall. The Pollinator Pathmaker is a 55-metre-long piece that has been made quite deliberately for insects, using an algorithm designed by a string theory physicist. I caught up with Daisy at her home in central London. Daisy, how are you?
1: I'm very well and delighted to be talking to you. Well, thank you very much. And um,
0: was all that reasonably accurate? It was, it was. Thank you, thank you. We're cheating a bit today. Usually we, when we record these shows face-to-face, we're in people's workshops or studios. However, we're not in Somerset House, which is where you work, because it's a bit noisy. Perhaps we can pretend for the sake of this podcast. Could you maybe describe for us and the listeners what your studio looks like
1: well the studio is a single room i think that there's a fantasy about artist studios which i have as well which is it's full of paints and materials but because a lot of what i do is computer based or emerges into physical things in the gallery it's a bit like an office but because it's at somerset house we have chandeliers and a fireplace and so very lucky to be in the basement of a palace Mm.
0: So until this point, a lot of your work has been in museums and galleries. Now, i guessing your practice was hard hit by the pandemic. How have you coped?
1: Oh, wow, well, that's... A- <laughs> um, no, it has been incredibly strange and good things came out of it. But as for everyone, a really, really tough time. Mm. I think I sort of had premonitions back in February of 2020 that this was not going to be a good thing. I felt like I picked up some early signals And I mean, everything was cancelled or postponed and it really changed the studio because there was nothing, you know, nothing on the horizon. But I was really lucky that I was working on this proposal for a commission for the Eden project and presented that during lockdown in April 2020 to the jury. And it sort of was infused with pandemic lockdown ideas. So how could we get out of our homes? How could I get outside Mm. into nature? And sort of, I think what a lot of us were feeling was a need for the natural world. And also for those who weren't able to access it, this feeling that the, the injustice of not being able to access it in cities and the places we live.
0: We're in the middle of London now, but I think looking at Instagram that you moved to the country for a bit. You got a dog, Peanut, is sat next to us as we speak, being very well behaved and he very He is
1: sleeping very well and let's hope he carries on. Yeah, I did the full cliche. So I got a <laughs> Pandemic Puppy. Um, no, we, did, My partner and I had started thinking about moving to the countryside, so just outside London. So we were very fortunate that we were able to decamp in in early March last year and be around trees. I mean, just such, so so lucky to have been able to do that. And I hadn't lived in the countryside for a really long time Mm. and suddenly to be getting muddy every day and not having to worry about it and just being in the woods every day is my is my place so unfortunately it's changed me (laughs) it's hard 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 to come back to london
0: because i've read you taken up gardening
1: well yeah it's uh, in a big way in a huge way
0: (laughs) in a huge way as a hobby not just a professional
1: well i started i mean caveat here is that it's very embarrassing to admit that I'm not an experienced gardener <laughs> having to start a very large plant-based this commission. Is this is true. But my dad is a mm. gardener of extreme industry. And it's something that, I mean, I used to grow potatoes as a kid and sell them to my mom and then cut hedges for my dad and he paid a pittance. But the it was in July last year that I discovered after lockdown lifted that there was this extraordinary charity run garden right near our home. And I was walking past and the doors, it was a walled garden. The doors were open and I looked inside and I said, what is this place? And they said, well, you can't come in because of lockdown, rest- of COVID restrictions. Only volunteers are allowed in. So I emailed that evening and said, can I become a volunteer? And I started going two days a week in the summer last year and learning to pick vegetables, grow things, really the junior junior with all these amazing volunteers who run this organization and normally running workshops for autistic kids and people from different kinds of backgrounds who don't have access to the natural Mm. world. And the highlight I think was being given the pollinator friendly bed to weed and the person who's normally in charge of it was on holiday. And I was told to try and weed it. And the most terrifying moment of well, what is a weed when you're looking at wildflowers yeah, and yeah, sitting yeah. i ended up taking a stack of books from the shed and sitting there trying to work out in the most <laughs> academic way what was i looking at and so trying to get some practical experience
0: so your latest project it's just launched yeah at the eden project in cornwall 55 meters long and the twist is that it's been designed for insects for bees, for butterflies, for moths, for wasps and other endangered pollinators rather than humans. So can we talk a bit about how that came around?
1: Well, this was the incredible good fortune I had was having this gardening commission to try and pitch for as lockdown came last year. And I'd started with the team in the studio researching what we could do. So it was a commission from the Eden Project for a sculptural work as part of this larger program called Creator Buzz, which is being funded by the Garfield Western Foundation. And part of it is this physical commission. And it, it was meant to be an artwork about pollinators and the jeopardy they fo- they face because we sort of think as pollinators as bees mm. and, and maybe some butterflies.
0: There's been a lot of stuff about honeybees, seem to be the, the main focus of attention.
1: Which is great because honeybees are in jeopardy, but mm. they're not the only pollinators. So Wasps, I hadn't realised that ants, beetles, uh, moths, bees—you know, there's lots of things are are out there pollinating plants, and some plants can pollinate through wind, but the rest have co-evolved with these insects and require help to reproduce. So in Germany, it's something like seventy percent decline in insect populations over the last thirty years, and we're facing similar crises all around the world. So this commission was about bringing attention. Mm to their jeopardy and getting people involved. And I sort of started thinking about this and was scratching my head thinking, well, there's 55 meters of prime turf, <laughs> the, <laughs> the Eden Project in Cornwall, which is this incredible ecological attraction and, and sort of charity to educate people about relationship with the natural world. And I thought, well, why am I making a sculpture about pollinators? And also I'm not a sculptor. So maybe should make a sculpture for pollinators. And that was the starting point. And then the next step was, well, what would that look like? And I started researching how pollinators see. So when I look at a garden, I see it in a certain way, Mm. but what we don't tend to think about is well, how do other organisms see the mm. world?
0: So how do they see it?
1: Well, differently. So right. bees have different kinds of receptors to us. So we see red, green, blue, and they see blue, green, and ultraviolet. And butterflies can are um, able to see red, green, blue, and ultraviolet, but different butterflies see different need to each other. So what's a yellow flower to me, maybe a pink flower to a bee, but it's not even that simple mm. because they can see UV, so they're seeing all these patterns and markings that we can't see. And it's incredibly complicated. <laughs> and what it means though, simply, is that when we look at the world, that's just the way we perceive it. I mean, I, you look at green, I look at green, and we may be seeing something different, mm. but there's no way to actually verify that. But certainly all these insects see a garden differently and bees see different depth to us and different insects are perceiving movement differently and bees see polarized light, which would be incredibly helpful uh, because it can help them navigate. So sometimes I wish that I do had that superpower. (laughs) But what is really interesting then is to think, well... If you were designing a garden from their perspective, what would it look like? And if pollinators design gardens, what would they look like? But it's not just what they would look like, it's how would they function and what would be in in those gardens and how would plants be arranged? So again, extraordinary research out there with people like Lars Chitka putting little radio receivers on the backs of bees, of bumblebees and watching as they fly around and, and tracking how they move. But a bee may visit 10,000 flowers in a day and it memorizes the locations of those patches of flowers because it's something called the traveling salesman problem. And it's the same if you're selling Tupperware or if you're a bee and you've got a lot of places to go, you need to find the fastest route and saving seconds between each each stop can actually save vital calories. So they're able to memorize the routes. So that became the extra layer to bring in is thinking, well, how do we arrange plants in a garden. So, if you're designing a garden to incorporate all these things, you know, what plants do you choose? So that this began like an what turned out to be an enormous enormous project. But the other key component was how do we buffer ourselves from human aesthetic decisions? You know, if we're saying we design gardens to create places of refuge, to create functional spaces, to grow food, all the different reasons we create gardens. Increasingly, we're creating gardens that are pollinator friendly, Mm. but there's still choices between pink flowers or blue flowers and what's my palette going to be and what kind of aesthetic... And what's a way to buffer us from that? And I decided that creating an algorithm could be a really helpful way to solve the problem of how do you optimize this garden for other species, how do you arrange stuff and and choose which plants and when they where to put them, but also to stop my aesthetic choices taking the lead. So that was the beginning. And then I pitched this to this amazing jury and because it was locked down and I was looking wistfully out the window thinking if only the garden center was open, I'm in the countryside for the first time in a really long time, I could grow a garden and I can't buy plants. I said, well, we could put this algorithm online and then we could create a website where not only to be make the garden at Eden, but anyone can play with it. And make their own garden for Mm. pollinators, their own artwork Mm. for pollinators. And the jury really liked that. (laughs) So then I had to make it happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So to do all this, you collaborated with Roger Dewhurst?
1: So Roger Dewhurst is Eden's beekeeper. And I interviewed him right at the beginning Mm -hmm. when we were doing the research in the studio. And it was brilliant. So things I learned is that bees don't forage directly outside their hive, because that's where they poo. That was a top fact. Interesting. <laughs> Which is really important if know. you're thinking yep. where you're putting a beehive. Mm. And he brought my attention to what he described as mutualistic pulses. So it had never occurred to me that flowers bloom at certain times of the year because that's when their pollinators emerge. So it's this extraordinary co-evolution mm. of plants and their pollinators. So not only the way that plants are shaped, um, what colours they are, but also when they appear. And it seems really obvious when you think about it. But mm. as a, an amateur gardener, it hadn't occurred to me.
0: And you work with this string theory physicist.
1: Yes. So Chemek Vitecik, who is a collaborator from an earlier project, Machine mm. Auguries. Um, I got in touch with Chemek and said, so... This time (laughs) we're not recreating the dawn chorus using AI, (laughs) but I want to make an algorithm that can create gardens. And we sat down and and thought about what does this mean? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? And I decided it was a problem of empathy. So the challenge was how do you... (laughs) it's
0: (laughs) It's interesting this word empathy because I underlined it in some press clippings that I cut out Can we talk about empathy? What what does empathy mean to you in in terms of the context of this project?
1: Well, that's the question is when you have to then code empathy. Mm. So what is empathy? Well, I understand it as trying to understand how someone else or something else feels in very basic terms. And Peanut lying down next to us is feeling... You know, very (laughs) (laughs) tired, bored—all sorts of things I'm projecting on him. (laughs) But you know, Shemek was like, "You need a way (laughs) to tell me what to do," and I suggested we could define empathy as. Creating, solving the problem of a garden by maximizing the number of pollinators it served. So everything flows from that top level problem. So the empathy there is saying, well, how do we create something that's not for us? How do we design for other species? And this algorithm is the tool to do it. So everything that then comes from that top problem is trying to optimize for that. Mm. I can tell you about the algorithm some more and the the 15-page technical document that Shemek and I wrote together so I could understand what was going on.
0: Do you code?
1: I don't code, no. But it's really important to me that I understand um what's happening and, yeah. and from my time you mentioned my time hanging out with synthetic biologists it's not and also i mean when i trained as a sub training as an architect it was you know you don't need to be an engineer but you need to understand why a building falls down
0: definitely useful <laughs> definitely <laughs> so useful.
1: that you can work with engineers and it was the same here was understanding each step of what he was doing so yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to read the code but we wrote this thing together so I knew exactly how it functioned.
0: The interesting thing about this digital element, you've kind of compared data to pollen, describing pollen, data, seeds. These are all things that can travel while you're locked down at home, which I think is a really interesting analogy.
1: Well, I mean, I've spent a lot of time and energy, and I mean physical energy, not just personal effort, shipping stuff around the world to put in museums. And my work is about biodiversity and extinction increasingly, and there's this paradox of we're putting stuff in museums to talk about these issues, but there's this huge energy consumption involved in it. And I also didn't want to make an online artwork that just sits online. And mm. so this became a way of thinking about the technology as a platform. So it's a digital artwork But it's planted in living plants. There's many additions. It's sort of the anti NFT in a way. You know, funny enough,
0: (laughs) the the question I've got written down here is NFT going on here, surely.
1: It is a different (laughs) approach. Very
0: fungible or something. Well, there's fungus
1: in the soil for sure. (laughs) This idea of data, the similarities and networks behind the project. So the website, pollinator.art, is a platform for people to be able to make their own garden and then they can print gardening instructions are how to plant their own addition. And each time you make a garden, there's a new set of instructions with shopping list of plants and, and planting plan. And the aim is that it's a much more democratic way mm. to, to make an artwork. There's a generosity in the project. There's a generosity in the wider commissioning model, which is something that I see as part of the design aspect of the project. And there's this idea that it's actually in theory low energy in some ways. And and what I want to do is create the world's largest climate positive artwork.
0: He described it as an art led campaign. Yeah. So
1: it sounds so complicated when I try and explain it, but the simple element is the garden at the Eden project is edition garden one. And there's more of these big gardens coming with the Serpentine and light art space in Berlin and hopefully many other institutions around the world. We have the website and anyone can make their own garden on the website. But at the heart of this, is this idea that there's a life cycle. So we're talking about pollen, data, we're talking about networks of people creating things, the interactions between pollinators and their plants and you know even on the garden itself there's pollen spreading out from the garden at Eden to other plants and insects bringing it back so the whole thing is a big leaky network mm. in a way. And the commissioning model that we've developed with Eden is to me also really exciting because it's trying to encode these same ideas of empathy and generosity into the model. So bear with me. (laughs) Edition Garden 2 is going to be planted in Berlin next year with working with Light Art Space and the Natural History Museum in Berlin. And each time one of these new gardens is commissioned in a new region where the plant list we've created doesn't cover the commissioner also commissions the research to create a new pollinator friendly plant list. And I can explain more about how we designed those lists if anyone yes, wants go to on, know. Do tell but us. I'll, I'll finish this first okay. bit. Um, and the idea is that each time there's a new commission, there's a new plant list created that is given back to the website. And so you start to see these local clusters of new DIY mm. gardens. So the big institutional commissions have this generosity of creating networks between all the experts but also bringing in communities and this is going to get us to the goal of thinking about what is the world's largest climate positive artwork Mm. you can plant the whole thing with seeds you don't need to buy you know lots and lots of expensive plants and the whole thing is about caretaking in a way when it comes Mm. down to it
0: that's lovely I'm intrigued. How would you describe your practice, Daisy? I mean, you call yourself an artist nowadays, but as we described in the intro, you trained in architecture before studying design interactions at the Royal College of Art, which was run by Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby at the time, then getting a PhD at the same institution, which I think Tony oversaw, yeah. am I right? Tony yeah, and, yeah. and Sarah Teasley. So there's a moment where you decided to describe yourself as an artist as opposed to a critical designer. What was that moment and why?
1: Well, (laughs) these words, art and design, what do they really mean? Do we need to get into it? I think from the beginning, I didn't really want to be an architect. I was never a designer. I found the design interactions course where I studied and then went back to do the PhD after a few years out. And I didn't really know what I was. So what is a critical designer? I was being labeled a speculative designer because my work involved, you know, alternative worlds. You were that being
0: labelled or you were labelling yourself? No,
1: I think I was being, I don't, I'm not very good at these labels. I mean, in my work, I'd spend a lot of time looking at labels and taxonomies mm. and natural history classifications, but sometimes I find labels complicated. And I, I think after, I went back to do the PhD after spending a really hefty amount of years hanging out in synthetic biology with all these extraordinary <laughs> Engineers and scientists, and, and different kinds of institutions, and the sort of political drama of a new field of techno science being constructed. And a lot of what I was doing in creating a space for critical art and design practice. So, in a way, I was taking on a more curatorial role in some of the projects that I did, such as the, this big research project called Synthetic Aesthetics, mm, which mm. I'll talk a little more about after the explaining my escape to art (laughs) the the I felt like what of a lot of what I was doing standing up on stage at all these scientific conferences was in a way a kind of performance art that I had reached this point where I was so embedded in the field that I was promoting it in a way I mean I was also known to be initiating dialogue Mm. and the question was really well what is the social contract of what I'm doing I'm delving into this sort of crazy world in a way of hopes and dreams for the future. And that's what I ended up writing my my PhD about. So synthetic biology, I'm not saying it's crazy, but the, the construction of dreams is a very fascinating um space in itself to design. And, and what I'm interested in is why people make stuff and why they build these ambitious projects to to create whole new fields of science and to create buildings. Like why do humans make stuff to make mm. the world better? Mm. And in a way I realized that maybe I'm, it's more of an artistic practice about design and mm. it doesn't really matter what the subject matter is. Basically, when I was three, I wanted to be a painter and now I can just say I am. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned
0: being three because I've got a huge wealth of press on you and none of it talks about your childhood or growing up. And I'm quite intrigued. I mean, I know that you lived I was in... born an adult. Well, it, does, it feels that way. I know that you lived in London, but you moved to the countryside when you were eight. You've mentioned that your father was an avid gardener he built a traditional garden i think in a field by his yeah. house and, and grew shiitake mushrooms
1: all of my secrets are coming out yeah, yeah yeah yeah.
0: so was he a farmer
1: my parents are from cape town right and i was born in the uk and they came over in the in the 70s and in south africa my father ran the family rooibos tea farm which is the family family trade and my parents came over and started selling rooibos tea here right and i think there was a a yearning for big open spaces and the hampshire countryside <laughs> was the, <laughs> the closest thing so we they'd moved to london and then they they substituted found substituted
0: for the bell really.
1: well yeah they found this old wreck and they just spent sort of four or five years knocking down walls and and rebuilding this house and my father through this it's an old farmhouse and he got very interested in traditional gardens. And he's also, uh, so it's not about my father, this podcast, but he is very influential in me constantly trying to rebel. Right. So he's spent a lot of time in his youth out in Asia and traveling around Japan and China and beyond, and is an expert in East Asian landscape. And somehow this, this manifested in a very traditional topiary garden (laughs) in the English countryside. So it's sort of his interest is in space and uh, construction of space. And somehow he's managed to realise this through digging up a field and spending 30 years turning it into topiary rooms.
0: Topiary. People can write in and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think topiary was brought into this country by William of Orange as a takeaway fact for you
1: i'm not going to challenge you on that (laughs) but i have been to meetings of the european box and topiary society wow
0: i bet that's wild
1: it is and i've been on trips with them so i can i can i know who to ask
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're obviously painting as a child were you designing were you always going to go into the arts
1: well yes i mean if i yeah we get back into what it's like to have a brain split in half. Mm. So I did sort of chemistry and and then I also did art. I used to make ridiculous machines as a kid. I'd be, I mean, I was just, you know, reading the Beano and out in the woods. I mean, it was all incredibly idyllic. I was very lucky. And I used to make nonsense machines and I was kind of on my own. (laughs) My sister's a a little bit older, but was less interested in imagining all this stuff than I was. So I was always creating things some particular highlight machines was the the one that would write letters for me. <laughs> so I didn't have to write, I had a lot of knobs and it didn't work. <laughs> but then I was, when I was thinking about university, I mean, I was flailing about thinking maybe I'll do politics and you know, something like that. And my dad sort of nudged me and said, what about architecture? And I was like, what is that? And he gave me this cartoon book about architecture. And that's what I read before I went for my my interviews.
0: <laughs> At Cambridge University.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was this amazing book and I've been looking for it. It has, and maybe one of your listeners knows this, it's a series of books. They have them sort of introduction guide to Zen and it's all made out of old photocopies and the buildings sort of have faces. It's almost Monty Python-like. And that was the history of architecture and enough to get me through an interview, but I wanted to go to art school, and right. my parents have, didn't you know, fancy the Well, idea. they said you can go, you do, a, you know, do a proper degree. But this was a really good way to do it—something that was creative, but also had an academic side to it. Yeah. So yeah, challenged by structural engineering. Well, I mean, crying in the loose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you,
0: you did your architecture degree, and, and then you went into practice for. I lasted four months. Four months yeah. What happened?
1: Well. I suddenly realised that I'd got very excited about being an architect. And I'd done a lot of internships through my undergraduate. And was some of them were wonderful people. Mm. And there were other practices that I worked for. And I was just really shocked by the industry and just thought, this is not... For me, the Mm. hours were insane, the exploitation of interns, that I was really, really, I mean, I walked out of an internship and just refused to go back because of being exploited.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have described it in other interviews, a troubled discipline.
1: I remember a wonderful tutor saying to me, he said, well, basically, do you love it enough? And I didn't. And Mm. I was really troubled by how few women follow through, you know, my, my undergraduate was 50, 50. And then how few women at the time when I was graduating, it was about 11% women who were qualified architects and maybe that's incorrect, but that's how it felt. And I just thought, well, what's wrong with this? And I don't love buildings enough. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in architecture, but, and why we build spaces and the effects that those spaces have on our lives and future generations. But Sadly, damp-proof membranes are not, are not my thing. <laughs> but I have friends who love them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So, I mean, what appealed about design interactions? I mean, it's a very particular course, isn't it? That encourages students to imagine different futures, to use design as a, a critical tool rather than simply solving problems.
1: I knew nothing about technology, so I mean, we're really digging up. It feels like digging up the ancient past. So Sorry, I was it's, no no It's, it's what we do here, unfortunately. I went through a degree at Cambridge as you said where I learned to draw in ink and we did life drawing I mean it all just sounds I sound like I'm about 150 years old through this interview (laughs) so can we get onto the AI (laughs) so um I was incredibly old-fashioned when I graduated I didn't really know how to use CAD and all these things and I'd gone to work at after I Quit my four month <laughs> stint in architecture. I'd gone to work at the Architecture and Urbanism Unit at City Hall, where Richard Rogers was leading mm. this incredible unit. There were about seven of us, and I was the the assistant. So thinking about long term futures for London, and in a really radical way, it seemed to me of a hundred years ahead. And I was being sent out to you know off that we're doing a project on the Royal Docks. In East London, and I was told to go make some maps. So I was wandering around, and I made this was sort of two thousand four or five, and I made a smell map. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I was map. just I was just wandering around, making smelling, maps. sniffing the air. Yeah, so I was like, what maps? <laughs> and it was the first taste that design and architecture could be this other thing. And then I won the scholarship to go to Harvard, which was a year of just experimenting. It seemed. And I was meant to be doing landscape architecture. That's what I told the scholarship jury. And instead... I discovered they did animation, that there was an art school. And I was like, finally, I found my way to an art school. So I went off and i was doing set design and all this other stuff. And I happened to meet some PhD students from the media lab at MIT who'd cross registered in this crazy American system to Harvard, to these animation classes. And then they took me to the media lab at MIT and I walked in and there was robots and huge machines. And I'd never seen anything like this. I felt like I'd come from the 19th century <laughs> and they told me about this new course that was starting at the Royal College of Art called design interactions. And it was, this was 2006, the beginning of 2000. So it'd just been running for a year or so. Mm. And I binned my architecture, MA applications and, applied to this course, didn't really know anything about it, but knew that we were going to be looking at the implications of emerging technologies. And I had just gone to the open day and I looked at design products and I went to listen to design interactions. I was like, this, this is it. This is, I have no idea what it is, but it's for me. And it totally changed my life. And it just, you know, I found a, a path and it was extraordinary because I knew nothing about biotechnology. I knew nothing about coding. I knew nothing. I was amazed to get a place on it. (laughs) And I felt completely lost. But then I discovered, I started to learn about genetic engineering and became very curious about it. And then in my second term, a friend, Sasha Poflep, who was a collaborator, and um, friend. And he had been to this lecture in a basement in Berlin with Drew Endy, who is this MIT professor who's was kind of one of the founding fathers of synthetic biology, persuading the audience at the Chaos Computer Club that DNA was a programming material. And Sasha came back from Berlin and was like, Daisy, you're going to love this. Mm. And that was that. Was that. <laughs> so then I was like, well, for once, I'm going to stick at looking at one thing.
0: Well, can we talk about synthetic biology? Because we have we have a kind of mixed audience listening to this podcast, some of whom could be listening to this going, scratching their heads going, synthetic biology. What is that?
1: Synthetic biology is very easy to explain in a very simple way. It's a different approach to genetic engineering. So... I think in the nineties, especially in the UK became familiar with this idea of genetic engineering. It's something slightly scary, taking genes for one thing and randomly putting them in another Mm. thing and seeing what would happen. And that's how I'd understood it. And what I'd learned about synthetic biology is instead a group of computer scientists and engineers were coming into biology. So confusing genetic engineering was being done by biologists Mm. and our engineers came in and called it synthetic biology, which is a interesting exercise in branding. Um, But they said, well, actually, let's think of this much more in an engineering systems way. So if we think of DNA as programmable code, can we make a standardized code or way of coding it so that then we can make useful machines, i.e. bacteria, do stuff for us and make stuff for us? So a completely different way of thinking about life as a programmable Mm. material and that completely instrumentalizing life for saying well a bacteria is a machine to make chemical x or to perform function y and if you can think about them everything is a machine then it works but it's a bit more complicated it turned out but yeah. it was the ethos that that moved this huge field forward and i was really lucky because so the first papers that were written by Drew Endy Adam Arkin Tom Knight were around sort of 2000, 1999, 2000. And I came in in the beginning of 2008 and just decided to throw myself into this thing and go knock on doors.
0: Well, I'm really interested. Could you immediately see a place for you in this field?
1: Well, no, I, well, I just thought I had been jumping around Hmm. so much between all these different experiments of what I was going to be when I grew up. And (laughs) suddenly thought, well, well, maybe I'll try synthetic biology, but it was, just I was in this incredibly luxurious space in design interactions where I was being taught to go and talk to people. And it's not something I'd experienced when I was in my undergraduate architecture. And I think things have changed because like the internet was invented. <laughs> <laughs> I really make myself out. Sound well, older so you know, than I had The this, Internet
0: is responsible for us talking to people.
1: Well, I felt like in my undergraduate in architecture, you know, I managed to spend a year designing a healthcare center in my second year without ever talking to a doctor <laughs> and that wasn't really yeah part of what we were being instructed to do and it wasn't whereas what I was learning in design interactions is that going and asking people the questions I'd always wanted to ask was really rewarding and fun and it's, it got like, to the, it's like being a journalist you well know. that was the thing is I could go and meet all these scientists and then start to piece together this stuff and then come out at the end with a artwork design project whatever you want to call it that could talk about the issues there and it was the most incredible switch in a way from architecture where I mean now when I teach and there's sort of nine meters of drawings on the wall um and instead it was like here's a tiny little object that's going to tell you open up this whole world of ideas for the audience and it was magical But I decided I was just going to go and talk to as many synthetic biologists or people involved and very gradually got up the confidence to do that. And then really threw myself into it after I graduated.
0: Yes. Well, you did this, you've mentioned synthetic aesthetics. Mm -hmm. You put designers together with
1: scientists. Well, I, after I graduated, so one of the things I came up with in my master's was I added an extra branch to the tree of life. Because yes. it seemed like a, it seemed like there was one missing. And that was really a response to seeing this extraordinary new field and going to conferences and, and starting to to understand this ideological nature of the whole thing. So the Tree of Life is a model. Again, I knew nothing about science, history of science in this way, but I learned that the tree of life is a model for the world. And I'd always thought, well, the tree of life is the world. You know, it never occurred to me. There's lots of different versions of it that have been created over the year. And I was starting to learn about the construction of science. So then I thought, well, where are all these synthetic biologists uh, inventing these new forms of, of the natural world, all these new machines, but the difference is that they're invented for us. So should they be classified in the same way as say, you know, a rhinoceros that exists and and now we have a bacteria that produces or yeast that produces insulin is that still a yeast or is its function changed by becoming a design object Mm. so i just drew an extra branch on the tree of life so i could go and talk to synthetic biologists and say well how do you (laughs) is this right this branch
0: got added to various
1: yeah various books yeah even ended on i had a career highlight was talking to Rich Roberts, who is a Nobel Prize-winning scientist. And I was in Australia on a doing a residency, and he rang me up because I he'd said that he wanted to include this on the cover of a special issue of the scientific journal, and he was the guest editor. But he said but there's a few mistakes in it. <laughs> and obviously it was a fiction. And this was this light bulb moment for me where a fiction, so a four branch tree of life, bacteria, eukarya, archaea plus synthetica was a vehicle to talk to scientists and that scientists could also use this as a way to talk to other scientists um, rather than the usual stuff you have on the cover, you know, a DNA helix Mm. glowing blue. Instead, there's this tool as, you know, this piece of work could be a way for scientists to talk to each other about how do we talk about this and and what does it mean to do this? So were you
0: embraced by the science community?
1: Uh, Yeah, I used to, Mm. I hung out a lot. So I ended up at MIT at a genetic engineering competition (laughs) called iGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, which was again, this fascinating bit of the synthetic biology mechanics So I wrote my PhD about how the field essentially builds itself, Mm. constructs its imaginary and then realises it. So this competition, thousands of students from around the world, from universities and our high schools, went off to MIT where they'd spent their summer constructing a machine, a, a design object that happened to be a bacteria that did something cool. And they go off and present it in a big competition and someone wins, which to me was not how I thought of the world. I managed to get involved in the Cambridge team with a a collaborator who's a designer. And we ended up wandering around MIT with a briefcase full of coloured poo, which is not something I want to be known for anymore, but became You you, you, you were known as the poo lady. I I think it was the poo girl, girl. I was was younger. (laughs) Um, So this briefcase of coloured poo, which was talking about engineered bacteria as a potential diagnostic tool that you could poop different colours. And the students from Cambridge had made this bacteria that produced different colours. So we'd been working with them thinking about, well, what is it? Who, you know, who owns your internal space if it becomes a space of Mm -hmm. design? Or what is a computer interface when everything's made out of biology? we ended up with this briefcase of poo, which was a mechanism <laughs> to talk to people at iGEM and have conversations with FBI officers, the UN bioweapons guy, all the characters who hang around a student you, genetic engineer. Yes, yeah, yeah, they were all doing presentations. It's this incredible microcosmous competition. It was so inspiring. I'd already met Drew Endy uh, when I went off to show him my synthetic kingdom after I graduated. I went to Stanford and said, what do you think? (laughs) Do we need an extra kingdom? Mm -hmm. And then encountered him and his team, um, two collaborators at the iGEM Jamboree. And they had won this incredible grant uh, for a project called Synthetic Aesthetics that was pure scientific research. They'd all been, so 30 scientists locked in a hotel for five days with $10 million to win. And this is what <laughs> you learn as a as a young designer coming into synthetic biology is this other world. And so they were all competing for five grants, I think. Wow. And Drew, Jane Calvert and Alistair Elphick won half a million dollars to bring artists and designers together with scientists and engineers for a scientific research project to run residencies. And they didn't really know how to deliver this. And I didn't know how to deliver it, but I said I did. Okay, so this is a synthetic
0: aesthetic. <laughs> this
1: I was synthetic aesthetic. So we ended up running a series of six residencies around the world from Japan to Australia, US, Italy, Berlin, uh, Amsterdam. And we brought um, artists and designers into collaboration with synthetic biologists. But what was different was that they spent two weeks in the lab, which is more typical for artists and designers now to be going to scientists and and asking them questions. But then we put the scientists and engineers into the artist Mm. studios for two weeks. And so Jane Pablo, who is a social scientist fellow and myself spent a few months following everyone around the world. And it became this sort of Ouroboros, <laughs> following everyone to learn from this. So spent you know, these people spending a month together in different spaces, and there was no material outcome expected from these collaborations. It was just about discussion and conversation. It's oh, got to be great, isn't oh, it? It was unreal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, material things came out because in science, it's publish or perish. Yeah. And, and you could say an art and design exhibit or expire but I had this incredible time learning from all these amazing practitioners um, the differences in language between what they were all talking about.
0: I read something that you said that I thought was kind of fascinating where you talked about the difference between day science and night science.
1: So so we ended up, um, thanks to MIT Press, producing a book that described this whole mad multi-expedition. <laughs> but I would also say a lot of the people who are part of this still work together, which is amazing. And one of the pairs was one of the teams ended up being Wendell Lim from University of California, San Francisco, and he's a, a very senior scientist. And we teamed him up with a pair of designers from IDEO in Palo Alto. Mm. And for Wendell, he was super keen to see how IDEO dealt with design thinking, because for him and his systems and synthetic biology laboratories, his, you know, he'd he'd heard a bit about IDEO, and for him, it was just like. There could be something here to learn from. And they ended up writing this chapter about day science and night science, which is, I think the term, I think comes from Uri Alon. So they didn't coin the term, but it's this idea that in science, failure is not accepted. So in art and design, well, we experiment and we make stuff and we don't know where it's going to go.
0: It's very fashionable failure though at the moment. You would have thought science would have embraced this.
1: Well, the thing is, if you think about the model of scientific publishing only the things that went right get published. Mm. So there's this huge, you know, infrastructure of publishing, which then relates to who gets jobs and who gets funding from governments and which universities, how they're ranked all this peer review process. And there aren't journals of failed experiments. And the scientists talk about this. So they're like at night, we're doing all you know the same stuff that the artists and designers are doing. We don't know. You know we're learning. We're experimenting. We're failing. But day science is what goes right. And, what's not seen as part of the process is failure. Mm. Whereas Interesting. the IDEO system design diagrams sort of have this snake-like bulge in the middle where the the, <laughs> the ideas <laughs> expand and, and then it gets squeezed back into a particular path. And so it was learning that kind of thing. And and for me, there were a couple of key words which really helped me understand how different these two different worlds doing the same thing, but talking about different ways. And one of them was the experiment. So for the scientists, it's about closing down a set of opportunities in a way it's like is my is my hypothesis correct so whittling back
0: possibilities well in a way you could think of it
1: like whereas in art and design i run an experiment because i don't know what i'm gonna do or what to do and it's like well maybe something will happen that would that i'll find something unexpected and a bad outcome for a scientist is an artifact which is a human-made error in your data or the aberration of a lens blur Whereas as artists and designers, we're just trying to make artifacts. Yeah. So when you have a conversation like this, we can be talking using the same words, but mm. meaning completely different things. And that was, for me, such an important thing to learn.
0: Fascinating. Talking about words, since the pandemic, there's been much talk, particularly from our prime minister, about building back better, build building back butter one time, bless him. You did your PhD on the subject of better back in 2017, which was kind of prescient, I think. Why this notion of better when you, um, you did your PhD?
1: Well, this was the problem, is that everyone wants to make the world better, and I didn't know what better meant. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite simple. Uh, so I had no idea what I was doing. Working with lots of people, both not just in synthetic biology but in design and and technology more broadly. And I was going to all these conferences and you know, the TED conference, and everyone's talking about making the world a better place.
0: Well, your PhD starts with this really kind of vivid description <laughs> of a disastrous TED talk you yeah. gave in 2011, where yeah. you were told it wasn't really a proper TED talk because you were asking too many questions.
1: Well, that was one of the things I learned was that other people maybe do training before they do a TED talk. And I didn't really know what it was. It's a whole
0: industry now, apparently. I
1: know, I didn't really, I mean, (laughs) it's really, I was really naive. I I mean, I still am, but I sort of said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And I knew what I wanted to talk about, which was what I had been doing in synthetic biology with synthetic aesthetics. And, And this was really, I'd only been out of my MA for two years And sort of said, okay, I could do this, got up on stage and prepared my talk over a few months. And it just didn't work because I didn't have the way to really simply talk about why I thought it mattered Mm. that art and design were asking these difficult questions in a field like synthetic biology, where the future of all life was at stake and that these could be methods. And we were inventing all these new ways of thinking about ethics and, and what's right and who should do it. It took me a few months, and I started working with the speaking coach actually afterwards um, to think about how I could communicate what really mattered. Mm. And he was sort of shaking me by the shoulders. Like, Daisy, <laughs> Like, there's something, you know, what is it that you're trying to say? And then it, it really came out. I was like, I wrote in the PhD about this moment. I was like holding a plastic be- a bottle and I was like, how can this be better and worse at the same time? It's better than the glass bottle. But it's also terrible for the environment. It's better than
0: the glass bottle because... Because
1: it's lighter, it's easier to transport, less carbon is used, it doesn't break. And the PET plastic bottle was invented as the replacement for the glass bottle, but without the idea of the single-use bottle that emerged Mm. afterwards. Mm. So it solves a problem, it solves a brief, and it's an excellent solution to the problem of the glass bottle. But obviously it has all these other... Issues and that. For so me, the was, notion um, is
0: we're constantly trying to improve the world, but actually we don't foresee the difficulties that these improvements it incur- then
1: open. It's sort of then messily splattered everywhere, <laughs> as PhDs <laughs> tend to do, into this problem of well, what is better? Who is it better for? And who gets to decide? And that's really crucial: is that there's no one better. The plastic bottle is both better and worse and you know a building is good because it gives us shelter but then there's a big hole with all the materials that we made the building and there's multiple betters and really the problem is how do we negotiate this Mm. and that's where the world isn't going to be built back better because we're negotiating it for a certain group of people Mm. and many and many other organisms and peoples aren't represented in mm. that process
0: so how has that informed the work you're doing now i mean i think it's been described your work as an investigation of the and i quote the duality of progress and preservation which i kind of like
1: mm. well that's a nice way to talk about it i finished the phd and mm. this has really turned into like this is your life um but, <laughs>
0: they tend to so. well it's more i
1: can see why because it all is really complicated for the, you know, I try and make things that are actually really simple and what we've just been talking about all sounds incredibly complicated. But what I really wanted to do after the PhD, just like this word better, it's a way in to open up all these really big ideas and it's not scary and that really matters to me. Um, and in the same way, the works I've made since is how can I create a moment of connection, a moment of transformation, whether it's a physical bodily reaction or a, a, something through aesthetic beauty that, that you know, gives also an emotional and sensory response that can open up a way into a bigger conversation. So the pieces I've made since have really focused on our uh, relationship with nature, this, this, mm-hmm. what is this nature? It's, what's. Well, not a thing. It's a word that describes something that we have come to take as separate from us and is really us. And to try and reconnect us with that and often using technology to bring attention to why we're spending all this money on technology and not on preserving this extraordinary thing that is us um, by just creating these moments. So for example, in machine auguries, which is using Generative adversarial networks, which is a kind of AI, which I'm not going to, that's not where I should start. Instead, I should say, you go into a room, it's very dark. You sit on a bench, you hear a bird sing, Mm. you hear another bird sing back. It's the start of the dawn chorus. And then a machine bird starts singing and it's very distorted. And over 10 minutes, the dawn chorus becomes increasingly lifelike through this machine learning. The sun comes up and it's extremely unsettling. Because it's a machine-like version of the dawn chorus that becomes increasingly real, and it's not clear what's real and what's not real. And I mean, the technology behind it is incredibly complicated that Shemek managed to pull off this feat. But it's the moment of listening to a bird and thinking, well, I don't normally listen to birds because I don't get up early enough. and Or maybe there aren't any birds what and I, you, that's what i like to do
0: yeah and you want people to take away the ambiguity of the technology and and the the nature from that or well
1: i think the technology in a way is a byproduct it's not the focus it's um i'm really interested in learning about these technologies to understand why we make them and why <laughs> why do we spend billions and billions and trillions in artificial intelligence and i say we very broadly hmm. who is we here and then we spend so little on preserving this extraordinary animal that is the northern white rhinoceros. And so, using technology is a way to highlight that in a sort of ironic but not funny way. But it's also a way to understand what does preservation of life mean? What does lifelikeness mean? Mm. Each one is a kind of experiment where mm. I'm asking a question and learning about the technology by learning about the technology. I'm understanding more of its implications and getting myself deeper into the whole
0: i mean your quote is saying we absolutely must challenge the technologies that we make and ask who they serve and who benefits from their existence and this is the core of your work i guess
1: yes Is <laughs> <It's> the short, <laughs> short answer, answer yeah. <laughs> uh, well i mean that's the thing i came from you know as i've admitted this very classical education and suddenly learned about technology, really felt like an outsider, couldn't believe it, managed to get in the door, wrote my PhD about how a field of technoscience comes from these vision individual visionaries are able to group people together and realize their vision and competing different visions of what a better world looks like. And you realize, well, it's about different humans who are better at persuading other mm. humans to do what they want to do. And why do we have these Technologies I mean, I don't want to go and live in a in a cave. That's not what I'm saying, but I can't I find it really difficult to understand where we are in the world and what we're doing to the planet and again now when I say we it's it's a terrible way to describe and generalize because it is certain groups of people, and when we think about you know a technology such as AI well, it's not technology, it's a whole range of different things, and we use this one word and we sort of package it up neatly but it's different things and how we use them and it is just much more complicated Mm. and no technology is neutral. It's it's who uses it and what they're using it for and who's paying for it and who's affected and it can differ and it changes. And and that's what I learned from hanging out in synthetic biology is I thought I had very preconceived ideas about what genetic engineering is the scary thing. And then I did it, you know, I put some genes and another thing was implicated and, it's like, well, this is really complicated. And some of it's good. Some of it's bad. The same thing can be used for good and bad. It's the same as anything. And that's not stuff I learned at school. It's not stuff I learned at university. And it's really helpful mm. <laughs> to understand. And so when you think about you know, a technology like generative adversarial networks, which I mentioned before, sounds really, really scary. It can be really scary because it's what, how deep fakes are made. And we pushed that technology to make a soundscape of birds singing, but it hadn't really been used in that way for sound. So what we did with the support of faculty who are an AI company who introduced me to Shemek, the string theory physicist who who did that, is we actually made more of a technology that is really problematic. Um, So deep fakes. So well, is it good if it's used for birdsong, for artwork? Is it bad that I got implicated in in promulgating and pushing a technological development?
0: Do you answer your own questions?
1: Well, I don't know the answer. I mean, yes and no. It's both, you know, um, maybe it's a good thing that I know more about how AI works so that I can talk about it and explain that it's complicated and that we should be asking, well, how is this technology being used? How is it being regulated? and on a basic level a lot of what i was doing in synthetic biology was introducing the science to people and creating works that allowed people and that people could be scientists and engineers it could be general public to talk about this thing it was mm. so abstract at the time it was pictures of little bug like little bacteria with cogs coming out of them cuz there's no way to represent it when it doesn't yet produce anything that's visible. And I think it's very different now. We're used to biomaterials and all these things that have sort of emerged out of this field of like physical, tangible stuff. But when it's intangible, how can you talk about it? And that's a lot of what we you know, was being taught in the design interactions course. Yeah. And hold still. But for me, the driving force now is my panic uh, climate change and biodiversity collapse. And, and in a way that the Pollinator Pathmaker project, the using the technology as a platform and as a way to talk about pr- why do we use a technology to serve ourselves? Can we turn it around and use it to serve other organisms as maybe a first step in taking a more active stand on what mm. I'm saying?
0: I want to concentrate on one previous work mm. because you mentioned it earlier, which is the rhino, mm. the white, northern, northern, northern white, white rhino. Thank yeah. you. The northern white rhino. Can you just tell us a bit about that project? And you, you created a digital version of this animal. Why did you decide to do that?
1: Because well, I don't have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem is there aren't any left. Mm. So uh, with this work, the substitute, which I made in 2019, when you, you go into the gallery, you walk in and in front of you is a five meter wide window. And when you look at this window, what you see is a box, like a pile of boxes. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it best for, for the listener. It's this moving pile of shapes that is gray and is grunting and snorting mm. with strange uh, sort of, weird synthesized sounds and distortion. And as he moves around, as this object moves around the space, he comes into higher and higher resolution. And what he becomes is a northern white rhino. And he comes to the front of this window, which this window is a a projection of an artificial room, but made to look like a diorama window. So as if you're looking through the gallery wall into a box, the rhino is pacing around snorting. He becomes increasingly lifelike and then he stares you in the eye and then he disappears. Yeah. And then it starts again. And the piece is an exploration of this, my own sort of horror and curiosity at why humans spend a lot of time trying to make well, certain humans again, including me, making artificial life and not preserving what already exists. Mm. So it came about when the, the news reports of the death of Sudan in, in March, 2018. He was the last male Northern white rhino. And I saw it on my Twitter feed. I was like, you know, news. And I was like, I didn't know there was one. There's only two females left. Now I feel sad. Thanks, you know, Twitter algorithm for serving me up some moral panic for breakfast. And what was strange about all the news reports was, well, we can, it's fine because we're going to bring one back using, there's two projects. One is using essentially IVF to try and harvest eggs from the last two females who aren't able to mate because they're too old or it's problematic. And then put the, try and create an embryo. But like in a rhino, the eggs are about five foot in. It's not an easy thing Mm. to do. And then try and create a substitute with a surrogate. And that, and the other version is actually using stem cells, which is um, happening at UCSD in, in San Diego. And I say happening. We don't know how to re- like we don't know how to recreate a rhino yet. But my question about this surrogate v- route was: even if you create a northern white rhino birth to a southern white rhino, is it still a northern white rhino? Because a northern white rhino is not just a bunch of DNA. It's a living, breathing thing with a, with social skills. <laughs> and it's learned its culture from the other northern white rhinos. And if it doesn't have any to learn from, and it learns a different set of you know, behaviors, is it still a northern white rhino? or Is it just a vessel for you know rhino appearance and not full rhino function? And that's what the substitute starts to explore. So it's this thread about why are we investing in this technology yeah. and not serving a rhino what is it for the rhino to look at us in the exhibition what kind of emotion does that bring out and it references duras 1515 rhinoceros which is an imperfect copy so 1515 duras heard about this rhinoceros that had been sent from india to the king of portugal and then on to the pope and it had died mm, it in died ship shipwreck yeah, yeah, exactly and he drew a picture and it had an extra horn on its back because he didn't really know what it looked like and that image got replicated and replicated through the Enlightenment and became a symbol of sort of knowledge in the Enlightenment period, but it was wrong. And I've been to the Natural History Museum into the into the library there and with the librarian looked at all these different versions of this that have kind of carried through the 16th and 17th century until it got corrected. But it is extraordinary because it's an imperfect copy. And the same with The Substitute. His sounds are taken from videotapes of the last eight northern white rhinos from a zoo in the Czech Republic. Um, and it's a mixture. It's a hybrid of lots of different rhinos, his sounds. His He was actually a southern white rhino. And then I worked with The Mill, who are a um, digital special effects production house and we tweaked the Southern white rhino to make him look like a Northern white rhino. So he's not a Northern white mm. rhino, but it's the closest we have to it. And I said, you know, why well, do I don't have one? And they're like, well, now I have one, but is it really the, is it the rhino we deserve? Is it the the best approximation? When little kids go up to it in the gallery, it's incredibly moving because it's really exciting to see this life-size beast and it's the closest we'll ever get because it doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Mm. So... The work is trying to evoke that emotional response that it doesn't, you don't need to know any of the stuff about the technology behind it. It's mm. just looking, this thing looking at you is, and disappearing, then, and, disappearing mm. and then reappearing, but you can't hold on to him.
0: You've been, it seems to me, really quite prolific in the last few years. And I'm quite intrigued because you said in one interview that I read that in 2017, you felt no excitement about your work <laughs> God. Yeah. and you went on to explain yeah. that the RCA was going yeah. through a hard time the yeah. design interactions course had closed the PhD was hard and the synthetic biology world had changed and become more industrialized it seemed like a moment where you needed to work out where your practice was going obviously you've made that decision
1: yeah so goodness uh things that i say sad that they can reappear <laughs> um no i it's true it was really hard i think anyone who's ever done a phd or tried to do a phd knows it's not that fun um it, you are kind of unbuilding your brain and rebuilding it in new ways in the same way that a masters is the same way that an undergrad is it's you're learning to think in in different ways and challenging the way you think i was feeling I didn't want to stay in synthetic biology forever. My interest was not some, you know, the PhD helped me. The point of the PhD was to work out what I wanted to do. Mm. And I found that, and I was really keen to get back to practice because although I love writing, I felt that if I didn't make something soon, I may never make anything again. And it was, I really needed to take the really scary steps of trying to make my work at a bigger scale. And that's what I wanted to do with the next group of projects. So I'd also, in the PhD, not had time to complete my practice. Things changed at the RCA and decided just to, to write up. And so the four works that came after the RCA, which is the Substitute, Resurrecting the Sublime, Machine Auguries, and The Wilding of Mars were all basically testing the ideas that I'd set up in the PhD. Right. So if anyone gets to chapter six, (laughs) they can have the PhD, which you can get online. I was setting up a framework, so testing multiple worlds, playing with the idea of a heterotopia, so rather than a utopia or a dystopia world that's different, not better, uh, playing with multiple timelines and also positioning so more functionally positioning myself outside the science back in a cultural institution. So moving to Somerset house, mm. um, and being less resident in science and instead seeing what it was like to, to return for once to be in my home turf. Uh, they were all sort of conscious decisions that were informed by tests in my PhD. Mm. So yeah, it's Ever practical.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Look, Daisy, our hour is very nearly up. Thank you very much for your time. So final question, plans for the future. What can we expect?
1: Well, wellies are staying on. So the Pollinator Pathmaker project, which launched just a few weeks ago, is for me the beginning of, I I don't really know what. I've really, I'm excited about something that takes a long time. (laughs) So the Garden of Eden will be in place for five years the website pollinator.art where people can make their own is just, it feels like the beginning of something. So the garden of Eden will launch next year in June, the garden in Berlin will launch next autumn serpentine next year. And it feels like it would be really interesting to follow something slow. And I remember one of your previous episodes with Fernando Mm, talking about the long-term project. And I was really inspired by that um, discussion And thinking about how pollinator pathmaker will take all these different iterations and, and grow and evolve within a framework that is also an experiment, mm. kind of <laughs> represents how I like to work. Really complicated things, but it would be really nice to to see how that can actually manifest in soil and plants and pollinators and like something tangible
0: yeah so it's a question of watching this space for a long time
1: yes <laughs> well it takes a long time to grow a garden so that's i mean it feels like the the constant pre-covid move to put stuff in museums and three months in the next show and there's just not enough time and i think we all everyone who's involved in the field probably has a little sense of there's a lot of stuff to absorb and sometimes going and sitting in the garden is actually a respite and we don't do enough of it. And I think that's what I learned from, from COVID. And that is not what I've been doing the last year and a half, launching this project, but it feels like we should all be spending more time looking at how a bug crawls along a leaf and thinking about what we can do in this environmental and biodiversity crisis. So yeah, the 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 gardening hopefully continues.
0: Very good. Very good. We have to leave it there. Daisy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And Peanut didn't bark.
0: No, Peanut was incredibly <laughs> well behaved. <laughs> We're loving Peanut. <laughs> and to discover more about Daisy's work, go to daisyginsberg.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.